Thank you for listening to the Well-Managed Hive. I'm your host, Lewis Cobble. I'm an apiary inspector with the North Carolina Department of Agriculture. Welcome to season one, episode two. Uh, this week, I'm speaking with Dr. Gloria DeGrande Hoffman. Uh, we'll be talking about mites, monitoring, late season infestation, and nutrition, and other good stuff. I hope you will enjoy this, uh, this week's episode. So let's dig in. My guest today is the research leader at the USDA ARS Carl Hayden Bee Research Center in Tucson, Arizona. She received her bachelor's in biology and her master's in entomology from Penn State and a PhD from Michigan State. She specializes in mathematical modeling of populations, but also conducts research in honeybee nutrition, varroa mites, and the effects of sublethal pesticide exposure on honeybee colony health. During her research career, she has conducted studies on the pollination of fruit trees and row crops, Africanized honeybees, and the process of queen replacement in European and Africanized colonies. My guest today is Dr. Gloria DeGrande Hoffman. Good morning, Dr. DeGrande Hoffman. Thank you for uh, joining me today. Morning, Lewis. It's great to be mm -hmm. here. Thank you for asking. The, uh, I think that was a fair introduction, but I, I want to go a little further. <laughs> the, when I poke your name into Google Scholar, the number of papers that you have authored and co-authored and the number of papers that uh, cite your work is amazing. The breadth and depth of your work, relevant work um, regarding honeybees, uh, as far as pesticides, queens, nutrition, pollination, and of course my favorite topic, varroa, it's uh, really quite amazing and impressive. So uh, I want to thank you not just for doing that work, but for coming today to communicate that work, which is also important. So um, thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank, thank you for, for having me. So before we get uh, into the meat of it, uh, can you give us a little snapshot of um, the Tucson Bee Lab? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, the uh, Bee Lab here in Tucson is uh, one of the four ARS Bee Laboratories. There's a uh, well, one in Beltsville, which I'm sure everyone uh, uh, is familiar with, uh, and another one in Baton Rouge, and uh, um, then our lab, and then there is uh, a lab that specializes in all the other bee species besides honeybees, and that lab is in Logan, Utah. Right. And we all work very closely together. It's a, it's a great research community with uh, the bee labs uh, uh, in the ARS uh, because we each have uh, different strengths and we complement each other really well. So um, it's, a, it's a great organization to be doing research in uh, because uh, you feel like you, you they're, they're, your resources and uh, collaborators uh, are, are unlimited. But uh, here at the lab in Tucson, our mission uh, is to conduct research to optimize the health of honeybee colonies by improving nutrition and the control of varroa mites. And uh, of course, with healthy colonies, uh, we have a better chance of optimizing crop production and that's really the business of the USDA is to um, is food security. Right. And uh, um, honeybees are uh, are a huge part of that. Uh, uh, so much of agriculture, either directly or indirectly, 
relies on uh, on honeybees. Right. So really, uh, I, I kind of feel like your constitu- constituency is really the commercial uh, beekeepers is kind of your real target. And but I think that a lot of your research is also applicable to regular old beekeepers. I I hope so. Uh, I mean, in a larger sense, um, you know, we serve the American public, right. and uh, we um, um, problem solve for beekeepers and try to provide them with information that they can use to make decisions that will hopefully reduce colony losses. Uh, and um, we also uh, help growers that uh, require honeybees for pollination and for crop sets. So we work with uh, uh, those folks as well. Great. Well, that's important work. So thank you for for doing that uh, for us. I appreciate that. (laughs) So let's get down to the kind of the meat of it. And uh, in in my opinion, and and as an apiary inspector, a lot of the problems that I see revolve around varroa mites and uh, beekeepers' problems of dealing with varroa mites, monitoring and putting together good varroa management plans. So can you tell us some about some about some of your work regarding those issues? Yes, uh, um, you know, I've been working with varroa since shortly after it got into the United States and and um, you know, it was becoming a problem folks were finding it everywhere. And uh so at that point in time, we had built a, a model of honeybee colony population dynamics, and we're using it for um, different uh, uh, research topics, and it, specifically to, to see um, how Africanized bees were invading European populations and uh, uh, how, how we could make colonies grow uh, faster, make it through the winter, We'd use the model for management decisions. So when Varroa came, we thought, okay, well, let's add Varroa into the mix and and start predicting the growth of Varroa populations and when's the best time to treat for them. And so we we did all of that work, and the the model predicted colony population growth and Varroa population growth very well for for you know actually several years. And we found uh, that the timing for uh, miticide applications and were able to provide uh, beekeepers with recommendations and you know published a bunch of uh, popularized articles uh, uh, about it in the American Bee Journal and talked to beekeepers about it and it it looked like you know that that okay okay we could use you know the basics of pest management and control varroa mm-hmm. and you know that that happened for uh, a while that you know we 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 felt you know pretty good about you know we just needed to get uh, better uh, miticides out there because resistance. We only had one or two, and mites were getting resistant. Right. So we started to develop a miticide uh, with a company that uh, approached us, and the model again was very helpful to us because we, you know, we could tell the company, okay, you're, the, the product at least has to be able to do this, this, and this. You know, uh, kill this many mites and stay in the colony in an active form. In, in for, for this long and, and the whole parameter space for the product we were able to simulate and and saved us a lot of field work and a lot of just kind of you know um, experimentation sort of shotgun experimentation so we had this, this product and we decided to test it in um, commercial beekeepers uh, colonies and we did 
and we were following the growth of the colonies and, and mites and everything with the model to see how well the model was predicting and if the product was behaving the way we thought it was. And well, we came into the fall and we had this spike in mite numbers in the colony. We were doing, you know, alcohol washes and, uh, you know, colonies that had, you know, less than one mite when we, when we established them and, you know, going into August, maybe had one mite per hundred bees. We get into September and now, you know, that's doubled. And by the time we got into, you know, October, November, some of these colonies, we were up to 17 or 18 mites per hundred bees. Mm. It was like, what? Okay. So, you know, I'm a population person and, you know, you look at these things and first thing that pops into your mind is migration. Right. I mean, you know, in terms of reproduction and the reproductive rate of the mite, um, you can't account for all of these mites that you're finding. And, um, you know, we, we went back in the model and, and kind of reversed all of the simulations and we're looking at what kind of mite populations did we need to start with to get this many mites in this period of time. Mm-hmm. And we would have, we would have, with just reproduction, we would need way more, many, way more mites than we had. Right. So it was like, okay, it looks like we've got migration and, you know, you looked in the literature and there were papers about mites on foragers coming into colonies. So we thought, okay, well, let's quantify this. Let's test and see if that's what's happening here and see if that could be responsible for the increases in the mite populations that we found. And so that was the next set of experiments that we did was uh, monitor the uh, frequency of collecting foragers with mites on their bodies. And uh, what we found was that this was happening mostly in the fall after September was when it's happened with the greatest frequencies and was highly correlated with this, this spike in mite numbers. And so um, what it, you know, told us was that now our model without a migration component and it doesn't predict very well going into the fall and that, Beekeepers are never out of the woods as long as there's flight weather when it comes to um, varroa mite control. They're, they're dealing with a migratory pest here. And so what you're doing helps, but what everyone around you is doing is contributing to the mite population that you see in your colony. And right. that makes it difficult to control. Right. And even with your varroa pop model... It's it's I would think it'll be nearly impossible to plug in that uh, late season infestation because it's going to be different depending on where you are. (laughs) Absolutely. It's really I think it's uh, up to the beekeeper to just assume that there's going to be some late season infestation and be uh, and look for it and have a have a backup plan you know, a way to deal with that. I definitely see a lot of beekeepers that will um, do monitoring in early August and say, well, I don't have any mites, uh, so I'm good to go. And then their bees will be dead by November. And Mm -hmm. they say, well, it couldn't have been mites. I didn't have any in August. And trying Mm -hmm. to get the message to them that um, not having mites uh, in August 
That's good, but that doesn't say anything about your mites in September, October, November. And uh, I, personally, it's it's been a hard uh, sell. It's been hard for me to, to explain um, the importance of continued monitoring, you know, to keep up with this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's absolutely essential. I mean, out here, we're, we, we monitor every month. And, and we know if we lose control of it in uh, September, that uh, if we have high, high mite numbers in September, th- the chances of those colonies not making it through the winter is very high because we've got now infestation in the bees that are going to be making up our winter cluster. Right. You're, you, you don't have that population of the healthy winter bees to make it to the other side. And uh, yeah. So that was some of the stuff that I was reading in some of your, in your work, and I was surprised. I think I saw that. Uh, colonies that were that had a eight percent infestation in September were dead or useless in October, and uh, so I think that's uh, pretty important information to know. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean that combination of varroa and the viruses that um, uh, they carry. Uh, I mean it, it's it's. Um, no longer uh, um, you know, profitable to invest in that colony if you're a commercial beekeeper um, because it, it um, is probably not going to make it through the winter. And, and uh, the, the best course may be to just like, clean it up with, uh, get, you know, get rid of the mites right. as best you can and you know, make it broodless and make sure that that, you, that adult population doesn't have mites and then maybe combine it with another colony. So, you know, you're adding clean bees right. to uh, another colony, but uh, on its own, unfortunately it's, and you know, the, the, uh, the model, the original Veropop model that, uh, you know, predicted that, that, um, you know, what was, you know, going on in um, early September was sort of set the stage for your probabilities of, of overwintering. And that, you know, we told beekeepers probably, you know, we told them about this, you know, the best time to, to treat is any time after August 15th to about the first week in September. So you're going into September with, with clean bees. And, um, you know, and that, and that worked. Uh, for for a while, but now with these mites moving around, they're moving around at the time when the the colony is the most vulnerable to loss. Right. I, I was going to say, uh, I think that that advice, you know, uh, to treat according to the calendar, that was probably okay advice ten years ago, mm-hmm. but I don't mm-hmm. see it uh, uh, working out too well uh, these days. Uh, so, how do we account for? Um, Get those changes. I mean, when, back when Varroa first hit, you could have a colony with quite a few mites, uh, and things could still kind of roll along. But it seems like now the our thresholds are. It's at. I, I think the best management practices threshold is at three percent now. There's talk of it going lower. Talk about why these numbers keep going down and down and down. Because I think we talk about mites a lot, but we don't talk about the other parts as much, which I think is also important. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, um, I think that, you know, Varroa has um, adapted to, um, you know, apiaries with lots, that have lots of colonies 
so that uh, um, it, you know when that when Baroa is is in a feral population, um, its way its means of dispersal was swarming. You know when the when the bees swarmed, the mites swarmed with them, and if you're going to have a colony that swarms, um, the the effects of the Varroa can't be um, too negative or your colony's not going to build and so I mean that that's the goal of all all parasites and and pathogens and stuff is dispersal so anyway um, so the 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 mite coexisted with uh, with Varroa and and I mean with the bees and you know I mean you would find virus in colonies but it, it was always asymptomatic and it never seemed to have much effect on you know unless things really got out of hand there were other stress factors right but you always found things like deformed wing virus and black queen cell and all that sort of thing so now um in a in a commercial apiary uh, well let me go back to the the early days of varroa um when it was really um, adapting to feral populations. Um, if if it, if a colony died, the chances are the mites died with All it. Right, that was the end of the road yeah. for the mites. That was it. And so there was selection for these less virulent lines and and uh, uh, that could, like I say, coexist with the bees. Then you get into an apiary setting where there's maybe hundreds or thousands of colonies. Well, now the selection pressures are different. Right. Now, if you kill a colony, wow, that's that, that's there's ways to disperse. Right. And so that shift has uh, caused the mites now to, to, to get on foragers and, and migrate. But I think and this is some of the research that we're that we're doing now is that the viruses are part of this and that uh, um, that um, relationship between the varroa and particularly deformed wing virus is orchestrating this, you know, increased frequency of varroa migrating in the fall because this is when the virus titers are are highest mm-hmm. building all year. And um, these this combination has um, made so that lower numbers of mites um, can kill a colony and what it has to do with is that you may have you know three four mites per hundred bees but your virus titers could be high exactly so and that's and and that those higher virus titers you're asking things that contribute to that things like poor nutrition mm-hmm. can contribute to that exposure to sublethal levels of, of pesticides fungicides we know they compromise immunity or just other types of of stress factors, so um, all of those things are are affecting the ability of the bees to deal with these viruses that are being transmitted by. Food. Right, it's getting harder and harder. Yeah, yeah. How about uh, I have um, a lot of beekeepers that say, "Oh, I, I have uh, varroa res- resistant. I have a varroa resistant line of bees. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't need to." Uh, be concerned about my mite loads. What does your research say about that? When we 
um, first did our studies in and saw that the uh, colony or the mite population colonies in the fall was not due to reproduction alone, uh, but to migration. That's one of the first questions that we asked afterwards was like, well, you know, all these resistant lines are really built on some factor of reducing mite reproduction. Mm -hmm. Either there's lower invasion in cells or less reproductive success or so. But if most of the population in the fall isn't due to reproduction, are, are these mite resistant lines really, you know, helping? Um, and so we did an experiment actually with the guys at the, at the Baton Rouge lab who, um, you know, gave us queens and, and we worked on this together. And what we found was that in the, that those, those lines worked great in uh, in the summer spring summer but as we went into the fall mites on foragers were going into those colonies just as well as they were going into our unselected lines right and that the mite populations in the fall didn't differ among the among the groups of colonies right so unless everybody's got mite resistant lines and, and have their mites totally under control, and I mean for like a two-mile radius, you know, foraging radius of a colony. You may not be out of the woods with mites uh, uh, when it comes to what's going on in the fall, and so it's still worth just just monitoring monthly and making sure that your mite numbers um, are low. Yeah, I, I, as far as I can tell, that's the 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 bottom line to all this. Uh, there's not a, I mean, as far as um, Mite resistant lines of bees, I think that is a great base for your integrated pest management plan. Have good mite yeah. resistant bees, but yeah. that cannot be the only tool in your integrated pest management toolbox. That's the that's the bottom of your pyramid, and you got to mm -hmm. whatever else you stack on top of that. It has to include plenty of monitoring so that you can catch things uh, as they're happening or or even before they're happening. So I have people tell me, I do lots of splits. I don't need to worry about mites. I do this. I don't need to worry about mites. I do that. I don't need to worry about mites. And I feel like, you know, that's what you're doing is good, but you still have to worry about mites because you're, we're not, you're not uh, on an island. Mm -hmm. You're influenced by uh, other bees around you, whether you know that those bees are there or not. Um, and so mm -hmm. I, I just can't, mm -hmm. I just cannot, um, underestimate, or I can't say it loud enough that mm -hmm. monitoring is, uh, really critical. So in, in order to make good decisions, you have to have good information and monitoring is what gives you that information that you need to make those decisions. But monitoring can tell you if your plan is working or if your plan uh, needs bolstering or, or exactly what's going on. And so I feel like mm -hmm. the, uh, uh, in the bee world, uh, we're doing a good job of explaining how important um, or, you know, how mites impact bee health. You know, it's a big deal. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. that we need to uh, push monitoring uh, harder, more monitoring, more frequent monitoring and, starting earlier in the season and going deeper in the season. <laughs> mm -hmm, and uh, mm -hmm. so I think uh, 10 years ago, uh, you know, you could do a little monitoring in August and make a treatment decision there. 
and you might be okay. And uh, I don't see that uh, working much anymore. But that's how I see it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, when, you know, you have a, a pest insect that can move around you're 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 never safe. I mean, growers growers know this that you know you have uh, your crop is is completely clean and and somebody down the road mows theirs and all of those you know aphids or white flies or whatever now all move to your crop and it's you're you're <laughs> you can never kind of relax and think okay I've got this under control because it's never under control right. And uh, now it it seems as if Varroa is has become you know that kind of pest, and it's a shift in 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 mentality where you know we used to just worry about Varroa population growth due to its own reproduction, which is not really all that high for uh, a pest uh, uh, for an arthropod or a pest. Uh, you know it, it, it and used to take you know you started off with very low mite populations. You were really need you didn't really need to treat anything until about two and a half years in three years in and if you treated a well-timed treatment once a year it, that was really all you needed because the mite doesn't reproduce very quickly right but boy all of that is 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 over and we have to change our mindset now and, and think no this this mite is on the move primarily at least wise in, in our experience experiments and it may be different in North Carolina and, and which is what you're saying about monitoring earlier and more frequently is is a safe way to go because you know your migration rates may be completely different from what we see here or in you know other areas that we've looked at this and so you know it's it's not stationary it's moving around and it could be moving around into your colonies and um, and you can end up losing your colony because you didn't know how many mites were in it. Right. And there were, there were more than you ever, ever thought. <laughs> right. So I, I feel, I feel like, uh, we're losing a lot of bees to something that doesn't necessarily have to cost us so many bees. I mean, I feel like, uh, now don't get me wrong. Managing mites is not easy, but yeah. if we know what our mite loads are, it makes it a lot easier if we can catch catch things before they get out of control. I'm a big proponent of monitoring, and so I do an awful lot of monitoring in my own colony. So I have about 30 colonies uh, in my yard, and I started my monitoring program in 2019 at the end of February, and out of, I think at that time I monitored 24 colonies. I monitor every colony, and... I found a colony in late February that had a 5% infestation and I was able to deal with it right there. Now, mm -hmm. think about if I were uh, on the plan from 10 years ago where I just monitored in August. That 5% colony would have really polluted my yard and maybe other yards in the neighborhood if I hadn't caught it and dealt with it right there. And uh, so mm -hmm. I try to uh, let folks know that while it is uh, a lot of work, it really is important work. The other thing I saw is um, in the fall, I, uh, I did some post-treatment treatment monitoring 
my post my my monit or my uh, treatment was very effective, uh, and so uh, my post treatment monitoring was mid to late September. Uh, my mite loads I had one colony that was at two percent. I had twenty four colonies at zero. Things looked really good. I came yeah. back a month later, and I had three colonies that had been at zero percent just four weeks earlier. And now they're at five, six, and seven percent. Now, wow. if uh, <laughs> you know, so uh, if I had just assumed, you know, so oh, I did the post treatment monitoring, things look good. I don't, I don't have to worry. Um, that would have been a mistake. So yeah. I think yeah. not only uh, frequent monitoring, but I think it's also important to monitor as many colonies as you can stand to monitor because I'm finding about 10% of my colonies are kind of out of range. And uh, if I only um, sample a few here and there, the chances mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. catching those that are, you know, catching those problem children is uh, diminished. And it's so important to catch those problem children before they uh, wreck everything. And uh, so yeah. I think the amount of monitoring needs to be you know, so frequency and amount, I think, is important. Yeah. So that's kind of my soapbox. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. I agree. It's, you know, it, um, it's something that um, you can do to, you know, pre prevent colony loss. And, and uh, it's, you know, I, I realize it's not, a, it's not an easy thing to do. And, and it, it, it is it is time consuming. But, you know, you figure that a colony of bees, you know, how much it costs and how many inputs uh, are needed to have that colony grow and, and be productive. Um, right. Yeah. yeah that, yeah. Um, you know, this is just actually maybe one of the uh, inputs that is um, the, 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 the best investment, the least expensive for, you know, being able to detect that, okay, you don't have a lot of mites, you're good. Or word that, oh boy, this, this has happened. Um, I, and now I have a lot of mites and I got to do something or I'm going to lose the colony. It's, right. it's time well spent. I agree. So you guys did, uh, some work, uh, recently about, uh, putting colonies in cold storage, um, uh, and kind of looking at, you know, what, uh, which colonies should we invest in? Which colonies should we mm -hmm. not invest in? Can you talk about that a little bit? Cause I think that's interesting. Yeah, you know, actually, the Varroa work has one of the spinoffs of it has been cold storage, uh, because you know beekeepers have been keeping colonies out. You know, in our in our part of the country, um, with the almonds just you know next door in in California, a lot of beekeepers brought uh, their colonies out into almond uh, around late November, some, sometime in November, and and left them there all winter long where they had them in, in uh, apiaries in places like Texas or, but it's, you know, Southern regions and um, they're losing a lot of colonies and there's not enough forage out there for them. And, um, and, you know, there were some um, uh, movements to plant more forage and, and also to get better, you know, uh, protein supplements to feed these bees and, um, but then when I saw when the mites were migrating and that these colonies that were being left out there, it, 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 and you're in a neighborhood where now 
colonies from all over the country are coming in and you don't know how well the mites have been treated in some of those colonies and and that it just seemed like boy if you could get these colonies out of the environment and overwintering in cold storage um maybe you could prevent these infestations even if you had unlimited forage and you know, you, you had these these colonies that could that could rear brood if you if you've got foraging weather and you've got colonies all around you and you don't know how they've been managed and the mites are moving around you still could end up losing a lot of colonies yeah that's I mean, you know Pro mm. is the deal breaker. All right, that's interesting because I haven't I hadn't before you said that I hadn't thought of it in that context before. I haven't thought of cold storage as essentially putting them in a safe place uh, to prevent um, infestation from outside. You know, I've thought of it as kind of just a yeah. uh, putting them in kind of stasis to make it efficient so they're not burning through too much food or or whatever. But uh, I think this concept of just kind of Putting them, putting them in a lockbox for a little bit, uh, so you can keep them safe. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean that that was what what I, what I thought. Okay, that this this could reduce overwintering colony losses, which we have been trying to do for years and and have not been very successful. I mean, when you see what the the um, data from the Bee Informed Partnership and, and such with the you know winter losses. I mean, gosh, they've been you know, 30, 40%, like four out of five years. And, right. and so um, anyway, so, so, okay, well, this is a major change in, in management practices. It has to be economically feasible to do this. And so we started out by doing a study with commercial beekeeper to look at the costs of maintaining bees from the time they come out of almonds till the time they come back in almonds. And then in the fall, splitting them off and saying, okay, I'm going to put half in cold storage and half in, uh, um, in apiaries and, and manage them in, in that active state uh, during the, the winter. Of course, what we found was it costs a lot more money to keep them active than it does to put them in cold storage. But just because you put bees in cold storage doesn't mean you're going to pull out colonies that you can rent for almonds. Uh, the the shape of those colonies when you put them into cold storage has a lot to do with their probabilities of being large enough to rent for almonds. And so um, that's now led us into a research area of how do you manage colonies to put into cold storage uh, so that you increase their probabilities of being able to, to rent them for uh, almond pollination, and not surprisingly, one of one of the, the key components is you got to put colonies in there that ha that have had low mite populations in September. All right, you can't put a, a sick colony in and expect to get a healthy colony out the other end. It has to be healthy when it goes in in order for it to be productive in almonds. Yes. Yes. So what what's the what's the threshold you guys are seeing? Like what, how uh, how well do you have to handle your mites in order to get a healthy colony out the other side? Well, I I mean if you can maintain them, well, you know we we have that uh, we made this matrix that has um, the colony population size and the mite numbers, and it projects the probability of. Um, 
a colony being at least six frames when it comes out of cold storage in January. And so it, it you know, the mite numbers and uh, colony size are, and the, these are measurements in September. Those are the driving factors. Right. And so that, you know, matrix is, um, uh, you know, available in the, in the paper. And, and actually we're right now uh, putting together a, a, a little program that you can, you know, pull up on your phone or your, or your iPad or, or uh, computer and um, put in, in September, I had this many mites per hundred bees. I had, you know, this many frames. What, what are my chances of mm-hmm. having a colony that I can rent for almonds, you know, or, or you know, if I put it in cold storage? Uh, so, and, and the other thing that we're looking at is putting things in cold storage earlier. Um, historically, we've been putting colonies in cold storage in November because the cold storage facilities in the beginning weren't really cold storage facilities. They were, you know, like potato sheds and it had to get cold outside before they got cold. Mm-hmm. But but now there's there's genuine cold storage facilities where, you know, the air is being chilled and, and you can put things in anytime, just turn on the chillers. And um, so we again went back to the model and said, okay, what one depending upon your latitude, if you're, for example, in a northern latitude, when will I have the maximum amount of sealed brood in that colony, bees that are just emerging, that I could put that colony into cold storage so that my winter cluster has an optimum or an optimized number of young bees that have never foraged? Because the age distribution in that winter cluster is key to having a strong colony come out in the spring. And so we found that sweet spot to be around the middle of October for northern latitudes. That's what the model is predicting. Mm-hmm. So that's what we did. We put half of our colonies into cold storage in the middle of October, and then we put another half of the colonies into cold storage in uh, uh, November. You know, historically, we put them in and you know, we have one year's worth of data. We're repeating it this year. So now we're going to see see what happens. But we figure if we put them in early enough in October, we might even be able to uh, have one less mite treatment before you put them in. Excellent. Um, a little bit about nutrition. I think I saw a paper you were involved with that looked at uh, kind of the seasonal aspects of uh, what uh, – bees need from pollen and the seasonal aspects of what's in pollen. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So I think it, it kind of struck me because I, sometimes I uh, will collect um, pollen in the fall, put it in the freezer. And if I need to boost some colonies in January, February, I'll, mm-hmm. I might feed that, um, you know, make a patty and feed that fall pollen back to the bees it looked like in the study that maybe our uh, spring uh, spring bees are more sensitive to you know the nutritional needs uh, than the fall bees so um mm-hmm. it, it, i might need to change my method a little bit and instead collect extra pollen in the spring and put that in the freezer to feed to my uh spring bees the following year <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I don't mm-hmm. know what do you think 
Well, you know, this this is a, an area that, you know, we we have started on and it kind of, you know, came out of the thinking of, you know, if you if you look at other herbivores uh, that have a yearly cycle, the food that the landscape um, provides for them has has changed. It has a changing nutritional composition that in um, the um, the spring. And if you think about things like, you know, deer or elk or that what they feed on are really um, um, high protein, high, high uh, dense uh, nutrients that can be metabolized quickly and uh, that are needed because the animal usually is going towards reproduction and perhaps is has reproduced and and uh, now is is also lactating and and all of those sorts of things and so that that the environment supports that with the nutrients that are in the food they're eating at that point in time right and then you go into the fall and now, now the nutritional landscape has changed that these trees are are producing uh, uh, nuts and and seeds and now those herbivores are eating those, and those foods have a lot of lipids and fat that uh, uh, can be stored in the animal and be used for you know overwintering because these animals overwinter in, in an active state. But even if they're hibernating, they're still putting down a lot of stored nutrients in their tissues. So I started thinking about, well, you know, a honeybee colony as a, as a seasonal cycle too, as a yearly cycle. And it's like these animals where in the spring it's building and moving towards reproduction. And in the winter, it's getting ready for uh, a slowdown in reproduction and, and colder weather and periods of confinement and needs to store more nutrients. And so we started looking at the nutritional composition of seasonal pollens and found that, that these these trends seem to be supported now you know it's just one data set and it's just one study and you know more more needs to be done but what it sure looks like is that nutritional needs of colonies may differ depending upon exactly you know what time of year and what they're doing whether they're building or or they're getting ready for winter and that's sort of a one size fits all kind of uh, protein supplement or, or uh, bee feed um, may, may not work for an extended period of time. That nutritional needs are, uh, are more fine-tuned with that. And we need to look to the environment to see what the environment is providing to get some clues as to what are the nutritional needs of these colonies because they, you know, they seem to be in tune with, with each other. Right. So... I think um, it, with all things, uh, in my experience, with all things related to beekeeping, it's complicated. <laughs> it's, yeah, I agree. A, rarely a simple, <laughs> simple answer, and uh, it, it, it is. There's uh, so much variability, and and uh, it's just complicated. But uh, um, kind of to wrap it up, I. Um, I think I saw that you maybe did a presentation at the Entomological Society of America last month. Yes. And the the 
I think the paper was entitled, Can the Cycle of Rising Varroa and Virus Levels Due to Mite Migration Be Broken by Improving Nutrition in Honeybee Colonies? So it sounds like the question was, can we kind of feed our way out of the problem? Or, you know, how can that impact a problem? So can you talk about that a little bit? It, sh- sure. Um, again, it gets back to, to you know, this um, the struggle that, you know, parasites, pathogens have with their uh, hosts in that uh, hosts are, are reacting to being parasitized or, or having a pathogen by either revving up their resistance to it or finding ways to become more tolerant to it. And so we, okay, well, what are honeybee colonies? What are they doing when it comes to being infested with varroa and also the viruses that uh, um, are, are, are associated with them? And so we took colonies and we fed them pollen patties weekly nonstop pollen patties so they had all the all the pollen that 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 they needed they built up beautifully we had these nice big colonies and we had another set that we didn't feed we just let them bring pollen in from the environment and we did have to feed them at one point in time because they were eating their brood and so mm-hmm. we, we gave them some pollen patties or we were going to lose all of our uh, other treatment <laughs> right. group but anyhow um we measured mite populations and uh, infestation rates and virus numbers and colony growth, colony survival. And the, the punchline for it was is that virus uh, levels in the fed and unfed colony, there was, there was no difference in those. There was uh, no difference in the varroa numbers in the fed and the unfed, uh, be- probably because mite migration into the fed and unfed colonies mm-hmm. was, was similar. But we had higher survival in the fed colonies. And so it, we interpreted that to be those larger populations are more resilient to the um, losses that you have from uh, Varroa and from the viruses. And also perhaps that the longevity of the workers is not so affected as it is in colony with that has varroa virus and nutritional stress right and that worker longevity is is a linchpin for not just colony growth but but colony survival and being able to optimize that with good nutrition can build resiliency into your colony population so that's what we found the good nutrition didn't improve immunity or improve like resistance to the viruses, but it did help with the uh, uh, ability of bees to uh, to survive as a colony. Yeah, so I, I think really just uh, trying to uh, minimize stress wherever you can, if, whether that's nutrition or varroa or however we can uh, manage stress I, I, in my travels the the three things that i see um that i think are manageable um the stresses that i see varroa mites uh by far uh nutrition and uh, queen events so um, yeah yeah swarming supersedure uh that sort of stuff when uh trying to uh, help beekeepers understand uh how to recognize a queen event 
and how to properly deal with it, help them understand when they need to feed, when they don't need to feed, and that sort of thing. But I think it's important to be able to yeah. to uh, identify um, the things that you're able to uh, control a little bit and mm-hmm. and kind of focus on those things. And uh, so uh, handle the things that you can handle as yeah. best you can. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah. again, it, it is a... Uh, it's complicated for sure. <laughs> it, it is, you know, keeping bees is, it's an art and it, it's, you know, you have to sort of be thinking about it. It's multidimensional because things are changing constantly. And, and uh, so if you're, if you're going to keep bees, you, you know, you have to take care of it. It's like you're having a garden. You want a really nice garden while well, you're in there fiddling you know, right. with it all, all the time and, and, and thinking about it and thinking about where it is. And it, it, same thing with a, with a colony of bees. And, and so it's, uh, yeah. Well, Dr. DeGrande Hoffman, I sure do appreciate you uh, hanging out with me today. It was a real uh, pleasure and an honor. And uh... Oh, well, pleasure, <laughs> pleasure was mine too, Lewis. I sure enjoyed talking with you and, and, uh, uh, thank you for asking me. Good. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Take care. <laughs> All right. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. That wraps up season one, episode two. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, of course, if you have any questions or comments, give me a holler. Leave me a message at 919-593-4823 and I'll do my best. Uh, until we meet again, I think uh, in, a, in a week or two, my next guest will be Katie Lee, uh, tech team leader uh, for the Be Informed Partnership um, in uh, Minnesota, I believe. So uh, come back and join us for that. We'll see you soon. <laughs>